Big Conversations Little Bar with your hosts Randy Florence and Patrick Evans featuring candid conversations with the Coachella Valley's most interesting and influential people. Pull up a bar stool and enjoy Big Conversations Little Bar. Welcome back to Big Conversations Little Bar. I'm Patrick Evans and I'm joined by my co-host Randy Florence. Nice How are to you? be with you. It's great to be back here at Little Bar. It's wonderful to be back here with you. It's been a good little while since I've seen you. It's been a little while, but uh, you know the nice thing is we uh, will record them as we can, and, and then they live forever on some streaming platform. Why don't we talk about Patrick's trip to Europe? <laughs> That'll be more interesting. <laughs> that is the voice of our guest. That's Bruce Fessier. Let's introduce our guest Please today. Please do. The last time that I uh, had a chance to interview Bruce, it took me about a half hour to get through all of the accolades um, that he had received. What? Since, yeah, so I'm not going to do it this time. Okay, good. We'll put it in the uh, written portion on the website. Uh, Bruce Fessier, a longtime uh, entertainment writer for the Desert Sun, 40 Ed- years plus. Yes. I was an editor for most of those Editor years. for yes. most of that time. Yep. Retired Don't in- demote the guests. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the publisher People of the Desert Sun. Actually. Yes. <laughs> Retired in June. I think your last column was June of 19. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. That I, that I actually had to negotiate the language of my departure from the Desert Sun because it was, it was called an early retirement benefit, but I wasn't retiring. So I actually had to negotiate with a Gannett attorney, which I would say that I was retiring from the Desert Sun to pursue other opportunities. And that's what I've been doing. So there you go. I can leave now. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about those a little bit more. But when you and I last talked, um, weird. COVID had just hit. You had just retired six months before. Things were changing. No, I had left the Desert Sun. Let's get that straight. You left the Desert Sun. They forced you to retire six he's, months before. He's telling me he's still working. Yes. He's trying to tell you. Yes. What's happened for the last two years? You seem like you have been writing more over the last two years than you might have been prior to that. Well, no, I have not been writing more, but I've been writing more selective stories that I want to do. You know, that's the great thing is that I'm able to pick and choose and I've written for Joshua Tree Voice, Coachella Valley Weekly, uh, Palm Springs Post, Palm Springs Life, and the Desert Sun. So, and I had one story rejected by Inland Empire Magazine. So, um, <laughs> I don't know why, but uh, I seem to have a better audience in the Coachella Valley and the high desert than I do elsewhere. So, but <laughs> elsewhere I, uh, being the Inland Empire. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. What's the biggest difference to writing? basically self-employed as opposed to being a writer and the editor for the Desert Sun? Well, that's a good question because um, the biggest difference is pretty obvious. I'm, I'm coming up with projects and I've been pitching them to people who are very interested in my projects until it comes time to financing. Um, the <laughs> There's a shock. Yeah. The, the story that I did for Coachella Valley Weekly was actually a story that I did for a producer at AMC who uh, had wanted to make a, a, a TV series. In fact, she did make a TV series uh, based on a story that I did in 2014 for the Desert Sun on Gangsters in Paradise. And that was the story of the history of the mafia in the Coachella Valley. And I had a lot of people who really wanted to develop that series. But I didn't know. By the way, I think a a, a similar piece of your work 
That was a fantastic series, and I, I, that, I was glued to every word of that one. It was just really so well-researched, and I discovered things about people that I had hung out with that I did not <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, right, right. It was a little alarming. <laughs> there, yeah. There were a couple of moments where I was reading that, and I'm like, oh, my God. Well, I, I basically stopped that story in the 70s, uh, but there's still mobsters in, in, in the 90s and early 2000s that I knew very well, and, uh, you know, I didn't speak to Keeley Smith for 17 years because I talked about her romances with mafia people. And um, one of them was still around, and one of them played a practical joke on me one time, and, and, and uh, I had to go along with it. Jack Jones was the victim of this practical joke, and I had to explain it to him. I said, if I hadn't gone along, my knees would have been broken. <laughs> and he understood completely. <laughs> so, so, but yeah, the, the great thing about that was that there were so, so many leftover stories. Uh, people came out of the woodworks wanting to be included in the in this history of the mafia i was i was concerned that there was going to be negative repercussions from that story but people said you didn't how come you didn't interview me uh, and so i had so many leftover stories and uh there's this woman a producer of uh, killing eve uh, who who wanted me to be a consultant on this new series that she was doing but she had to buy some ip and so she she said can you do another story like that and i said yeah i can and so i did it uh, i did a 6300 word story for the coachella valley weekly that you probably didn't read <laughs> because it just so happened that that week that it appeared online um Tracy Dietland had a problem with the printer, and they didn't come out with a newspaper that day. Oh, so that there was no hard copy. There's no hard copy. Yeah, right. But um, uh, it was a great story, and it was it was all it was really about uh, the I called it the flip side of utopia, and it was about what Palm Springs was like in 1962-63, which was a pivotal year, and it was it was about the displacement of residents of Section 14. It was about the mobsters who were just really taking over Palm Springs at that time. Uh, Tony Accardo uh, had just um, bought a place in, in Palm Springs. Tony Accardo was the, the head of the Chicago outfit. And uh, Sam Giancana was staying with Sinatra at that time. And, and um, they, were, they were coming and they were staying at the El Mirador Hotel. And, of course, Ray Ryan, uh, who was the owner of the, of the El Mirador, was a, a, a great card player. And most of the people that he had big card games with had some sort of a mafia connection. And so, so they stayed at his hotel. Frank Bogert actually drove Tony Accardo around Palm Springs looking for property. And so I was writing about Frank Bogert also, and, and I was writing about the conservatorship program, which is what was, what was the really basis of the state assistant attorney general saying that the removal of Section 14 residents was a city-engineered holocaust. So I was covering all of that, corrupt conservators, mafia and the displacement of minorities from section 14 and it was a great story and i sent it to uh this producer and didn't hear back from her 
<laughs> and that's that's the that's the way things have been going. I mean, I've had a lot of great projects. Uh, one of my favorite that that hasn't come to fruition was I was asked to curate a museum exhibition for the San Bernardino County Museum. And they approached me, again, I didn't approach them, and they wanted me to do a story, a, 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 a visual story, an exhibition on the history of the San Bernardino County, or especially the San Bernardino Valley music scene. And, and uh, you know, I started thinking about that, and I had a meeting with them, and we started talking, and it turned out that I had been to a lot of very pivotal events in San Bernardino Valley, including the first music festival that Bill Graham put on in, in the Inland Empire and the US Festival and and several other major events there. So I said, yeah, I can do this. And we talked more and we developed a theme. And then the uh, executive director resigned from the museum and uh, her replacement said, uh, well, I have to take this up with our curation committee. And, uh, you know, we usually work five years out and uh, we really want to do this, but uh, I don't think we're quite ready right now. You know, so that might still happen. But meanwhile, I had put together a whole timeline. I had put together a theme of how the the San Bernardino San Bernardino County was a place where people drove through to get to their destination. But if the destination is the journey, then San Bernardino County is the destination. And it really was the destination for a lot of great music festivals. But a lot of people who came from, who grew up there always looked at San Bernardino as a place they had to escape. And Joan Baez went to Redlands High School. Wow. Yeah, right. Uh, Frank Zappa um, actually tried to get to, had a, had a recording studio in Rancho Cucamonga. And he got arrested because they thought he looked weird. And he spent <laughs> a week in the San Bernardino County Jail. And he said that that week in the San Bernardino County Jail formulated his political viewpoint because the only people who he was in jail with were minorities or people who had long hair. <laughs> so it looked a little weird. So, you know. You talk about some of the, you know, those seminal early music festivals that happened there. They were kind of the precursor of the big music festivals that we have now. Absolutely. And, and I don't think that we would have those giant, like Coachella and Stagecoach, wouldn't happen without some of those really interesting, fascinating really diverse music festivals that were going on in the period that you're talking about. Yes, and they were in San Bernardino County. Yeah. I mean, um, Desolation Center was uh, the first uh, music festival that was out in the middle of nowhere in the desert, in the high desert by Lucerne Valley, actually. And um, one of the co-founders of, of, um, uh, of Coachella was at that festival, not Paul, um, but... Uh, 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 it, it, it basically it, it made it seem possible and made it seem cool to have a rock concert in the middle of the desert. And, uh, and, and Paul went to uh, the US Festival and Cal Jam. Cal Jam was, was in Ontario. That was another oh, one I went to. the Speedway, to. right? Yes, the Ontario Motor Speedway. That was, a, that was huge and a big televised event. Yeah, that was the first Cal Jam was televised. Uh, and On ABC, I think. I think so. Uh, 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 Jorn Winther was the director, and he lived out here. Yeah, Jorn yeah. 
uh, go way back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. And he was killed in a car accident. He was killed in a car accident. He was driving around looking for funding for his next project. Right. He right. was, he was, uh, I mean, the guy was in his 80s. It never stopped working. He never stopped, yeah. He always, he directed, Yorn directed a couple of big Sinatra uh, television specials in his life. So yeah. He, he did all kinds of stuff, but he did that, the, the Raceway Music yeah, Festival. Yeah, right. And I, that was another thing. Before I came to Palm Springs, the biggest story I ever did was on on an attempt to bring uh, a World's Fair to that Ontario Motor Speedway and the the Ontario area. Uh, this is this was scheduled originally planned to have a, a bicentennial World's Fair in 1976, and they had planned to do it in Los Angeles, and. Um, there, it was going to be celebrating the bicentennial of, of Los Angeles also because Los Angeles was created, they say, in 1776. But so anyway, there was there was um, there was no place to put it in Los Angeles, and they somebody suggested doing it in Ontario, and they had plenty of land out there, and they had that motor speedway which was not being utilized, and Gerald Ford approved the World's Fair to be held there. And so all these different countries were coming together, planning to have a World's Fair there. There's three countries, Japan and two others, that volunteered to build a subway from Los Angeles to Ontario. Wow. Yeah. And, and they ha- there was all these other plans to, to create new technology for recycling. The, the the big concern was the smog and there was going to they were there all these countries around the world were coming together to create new technology that would mitigate the smog problem uh, it was it was it was going to be the biggest world's fair since the 68 one in New York uh, it much bigger than the one in Seattle in 63 and um, it <laughs> Uh, I went to uh, I went to Washington D.C. and did interviews with the uh, Assistant Secretary of Commerce. I was working for the Fontana Herald News, and uh, when Jimmy Carter took over, um, Jimmy Carter said that this, that it, it's up to the local government and it's up to the state. So basically, he washed his hands of it. You know, God rest, <laughs> he's not dead yet, but. <laughs> Uh, he was not a great president. I'm sorry, <laughs> but uh, he was uh, the greatest post president. Greatest post president. But I agree, not a great president. The the state said the state had no experience in creating private public foundations like we have today, you know. And the state said we need to have private enterprise raising the funds to make this happen. We, the state, is not going to subsidize a world's fair. There was nobody th- that was that was able to raise the money, and there was a columnist for the Los Angeles Times, Art Seidenbaum, who said, "Why are we having? Why are we celebrating Los Angeles's bicentennial in Ontario? You know, <laughs> this is a terrible place to have a World's Fair. It should be in Los Angeles." And people in Ontario said, "You know, all these people are going to be coming from all over the world to Ontario. They are going to they're, they're going to ruin our small town ambiance." And so they killed it. They killed the World's Fair. They killed the subway from Los Angeles to Ontario. It was actually going to go beyond Ontario. And they these changes that would have been so significantly positive for all of California were just wiped out right there. So, you know, that was also going to be part of my exhibition but well know. i know when i think ontario i think ambiance 
Yeah. So, yeah. And and eventually, the California Motor Speedway. We a listener in Ontario. <laughs> so we don't want to say Our anything. listener is on Ontario. Well, <laughs> there's no California Motor Speedway anymore. That's so, right. You know, That's right. Yeah. yeah. Bruce, one of the things that I think you really helped do, I mean, we're sitting here in what I consider kind of the center of, of the valley here in Little Bar. I thought you were going to say the center of the universe. Uh, The music universe. Uh, (laughs) The owner of this place, Skip Page, is obviously um, a big influence on music in this area. You've been a big influence, not just in music and entertainment, but in bringing a lot of different culture to the Valley, particularly when you were, uh, your early career here, um, different types of music that people hadn't heard and such. Was that a conscious thing on your part to bring something into the valley that they hadn't seen before? Well, there, you, there's a couple of things you're talking about here. You, you, I mean, I, I actually produce a lot of events. I mean, the, the Tachiva Showcase for the Desert Sun. Um, my wife and I put on the best jazz event, events that uh, this valley's ever had. There's something called the Jazz Celebrity Golf and Jam Sessions. Uh, we did that for six years. Uh, at Monterey Country Club, and uh, uh, and then I started the Desert Theater League, which uh, helped perpetuate uh, local theater. So the stuff that I did on the side, and I, I did a, a, a concert series at the uh, IPAC, the uh, uh, in Indio, Indio Performing Arts Center, where we uh, introduce a lot of the music that had been the rock music that had been part of the generator scene and the underground. We put them into the Performing Arts Center, and uh, and and that's what led to to Chiva and the Palm Springs Block Party. So I, I did that, and I also well, also did a series where we created videos for a lot of the musicians around here because you know the, the industry had changed so much that you had to have videos. So I, I, I'm proud of that, but I think you're talking about what I wrote about for, for the Desert Sun. Mm-hmm. And um, the fact of the matter is that when I first got here, uh, I had no intention of doing anything for the Coachella Valley. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> uh, I was I was I was looking to have a little fun, as much fun as possible, and uh, get out of here. Well, you weren't a real happy guy when you joined the Sun, right? Yeah, right, right. So, so I I was just I was just I was having a good time, and I was writing about my good time, and I was really surprised that people enjoyed me right having a good time and I developed a following that was totally unexpected and eventually I I started appreciating the audience that I had here and started taking it much more seriously and then I realized that uh, I'm living in what I think John Travolta once called in pulp in pulp fiction a museum with a pulse (laughs) That's what the Coachella, Coachella Valley was at that time, you know. There were so many people who were part of cultural history who were living here, and they were retired, and they had plenty of time, and they loved talking about it. And so I just kind of stumbled into interviewing those people, and, uh, and I became much more part of the community because of that. So, so I, I didn't really try to change anything in the Coachella Valley whatsoever. If anything, I was celebrating it. That's wonderful. Tell us a little bit, if you would. I want to go back because I always love this story. Um, you're meeting with Jane, your wife, Jane. Yeah. 
That old saw. <laughs> <laughs> and next week on. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'll tell. I'll tell you something. Shortest um, show we've had. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to have Jane on. <laughs> She's calling now. <laughs> Mind you, I'm not calling her a saw. <laughs> we know. <laughs> but um, uh, it, it, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I was just having lunch with somebody who was who was telling me about how he would help me. Uh, get my story to to an academic press for first for a, a book and i and i am not ready to write it yet because i do want to do some projects to tell you the truth uh i feel the i, I feel a little bit stigmatized by the by the label local journalist you know i'm you probably have experienced a little of this yourself you know you you have a lot of recognition in the coachella valley and then you you run into journalists or people outside of the valley who don't know you and minimize your your career or experiences because you you're only in the coachella valley you know and so i've always wanted to do something more national in scope that would you know kind of rid me of that stigma and uh so but uh when i do write the book it's going to be called conflicts of interest <laughs> and because because as a journalist you're not supposed to be involved in the community you know you're you're supposed to be detached and i have found my greatest joy being part of the community and actually helping and doing things for the community and that's created conflict of interest after conflict of interest but the greatest conflict of interest of all is when i was introduced to jane at a press conference and i fell in love with her <laughs> i mean uh, it was i i just was attracted to her immediately at this press conference and she was playing the lead she's playing aldonza in, in manila La mancha in a uh, in a uh, performance for sydney Harmon, who was leading the effort to build the mccallum theater and her co-star was nehemiah persoff and uh uh, and she was playing this lusty whore. <laughs> <laughs> At least it wasn't an old saw. <laughs> and she was so amazing on stage. I actually watched that with my sister, and my and I was I was nearing I was 29 years old at the time. My sister was thinking that uh, you know I should be getting married soon, and she turned to me. She goes, "Why don't you ask her out on a date?" <laughs> And I was just thinking, oh, my God, I was just thinking that, you know. I, I had been thinking about that since the press conference, but I didn't want to ask her out because it would be a conflict of interest. And then I started thinking, well, what if I give her a negative review? That's, that'll kill the whole relationship. And, but she was fabulous, and I gave her a rave review. And then I called the director and asked for her phone number, and he thought I was going to do a follow-up story. And I asked her out on a date. Good cover. <laughs> Good cover. I like it. And the date was uh, to a party with uh, Kirk and Michael Douglas. And uh, she couldn't say no to that. And um, uh, we were making out by the end of the party. <laughs> you and Jane. Jane and I. No, yeah, not, not Michael Douglas. Not Michael. No, Kirk. as a matter of fact, that's another element of the story. <laughs> it's a whole different story. It, it, it's a big part of the story, okay. actually, because I, I, I went, I had, my roommate was the food editor of the Desert Sun, and he was invited to this party also. And he brought a girl, and I brought, I brought Jane, and uh, Michael Douglas came over to our booth, and uh, asked Jane if she wanted to go outside with him. 
And, you know, she didn't understand why she would want to go, he would want her to go outside. And she said, no, thank you. Then he went, yes, she said, no, thank you. (laughs) She was too classy to leave me at the booth. That's that's a good quality. Isn't that a great quality? Yeah. But I would have been like, honey, go ahead. Well, because now me, I'm curious. Give me a picture. Yeah. That, that's, the, that's the funny thing is then he asked my roommate's date and she said she yes. <laughs> and, and so my roommate was just sitting there like this, just kind of steaming that his girlfriend was outside with Michael Douglas doing who knows what. And she ever come back in? She did come back oh. in, and we found out what she was doing. But she was wearing his suit by the end. Of the- <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that Jane stayed with me it showed me that this is a classy woman, and we were married less than a year later. So, wow. yeah. And what's Jane doing now? Well, she basically just retired from um, the uh, teaching at Rancho Mirage High School. She's teaching theater for M- MTU, and uh, uh, actually the. Uh, they lost their funding for uh, her after-school teaching program uh, because of, of the pandemic, and uh, and and we were we have a rental house in Joshua Tree, and we were renovating that for five months, and she took the lead in that project. And our son just got married uh, a week and a half ago, and so that took a, a lot of our time. So uh, that was an interesting story too, wasn't it? Oh, you want me to get into that now? <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> Just paying attention to that. It sounded like a a fiction novel anyway. Well, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, um, our our son uh, uh, had asked us to find a venue for him. You know, they, they were both my my son and my now daughter-in-law are animators. Uh, he works for Bob's Burgers, and she was the character de, uh, chief character designer on Rick and Morty. And during the pandemic, they were working side by side on on shows that were competing for the Emmy for best animated series. So they were too busy to to be finding a venue for to get married. <laughs> so they asked us. We looked for two years. We drew, we flew to Austin, Texas, where the in-laws live, and and we're checking out venues down there everything that we suggested no nah, that's not going to work and finally they remembered clay remembered uh, my son clay remembered that jane and i got married in 114 degree heat in palm springs and he was not about to let that happen for his <laughs> wedding so they selected the san Bernardino mountains as the place to get married not knowing there was going to be the first blizzard in 39 years happening on their wedding date and they canceled our wedding four days before the wedding. Oh, my gosh. Because they closed the roads. How many people were supposed to attend? It was a small wedding. I mean, they, called, they were calling it an elopement with friends. <laughs> <laughs> but there's 28 people. So on Tuesday, Tuesday evening, they, they canceled the wedding. And Wednesday morning, or actually that, that night, I called Joaquin Delgado, who used to be the owner of Las Casuelas mm-hmm. Nuevas, which happens to be where... Jane and I had our wedding rehearsal. Jane said, "Why don't we? Why don't we see if we can get have them get married at Las Casuelas Nuevas?" I said, "Are you kidding? Saturday in in March, the height of the season. You think we were going to be able to get a reservation for 28 people?" <laughs> and I I called Joaquin. Oddly enough, he's not managing the restaurant anymore. He was in Big Bear, <laughs> snowed in, snowed in. But he called his son said, I've known this guy forever. Can you make this happen? 
And so, so they, they sectioned off a, a little part of their patio and they arranged for that for a, for a venue for us. So then we got a new officiant, we got a, a new wedding cake, we got flowers and had turned them into bouquets for the tables, we got decorations. We, did, we put on a wedding in three days. And it was a fa- my son. Um, they got they got reservations at the Omni uh, uh, Rancho Las Palmas. They rented an Air- Airbnb for their friends. Another re- another friend who couldn't afford that stayed at a Motel Six in Cathedral City. <laughs> uh, but we put we we transferred the wedding from. Twin Peaks and the San Bernardino Mountains to Las Casuelas in three days, and it was a beautiful wedding. Oh. It was wonderful. Well, congratulations, Thank first you. of all. And Thank I think you. you stumbled on another business. Now you can... <laughs> That's pretty impressive. That's very yeah, impressive. I was getting honored that week also. On Wednesday night, I was being honored at Willie's... Uh, for uh, Amy's purpose. For Amy's purpose, yeah. And, uh, and I told that story. You know, I said, I said, I'm sorry I haven't written a speech, but I've been... <laughs> Been, you know, I've been planning uh, a wedding, and I've actually been trying to think of what I'm going to say at that wedding because I can't use the speech that I wrote for the wedding because we have a new venue now. And John Garcia was there. You know, he's, this is the lead singer at Caius, and he goes, man, if I ever need another concert or anything put on last minute, I'm going to you. you <laughs> uh, well, it, well, since we brought it up, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, Amy's purpose and why you were honored and just the organization itself and how you got involved? You know, my dog was killed in a hit-and-run accident. And I've, I've told that story so many times. It's really hard to tell. I it's, mean, a, it's a it, sad it, story. It is, it is. But, but talk about that led you to Amy's purpose, yes, which, it which is a, it turned something awful into something really That good. was the whole point. I've been friends with Deanne LaBelle for a long time, and, uh, and she started a, a great organization. And I thought that I could turn her on to somebody who could do a benefit concert for her. And then after my dog was killed, I, I, I realized they didn't have anybody on their board who knew how to produce a concert. So I volunteered to do that, and it became a nine-month project. And I got John Garcia, who works at the Palm Springs Animal Hospital as a vet technician, to do the benefit. Then I got my longtime friend, Billy Steinberg, who is in the Songwriters Hall of Fame for writing songs like Like a Virgin and True Colors and, and so many others. And, and he... Uh, graciously came down and was the opening act. We raised money for eighteen $3,200 scholarships for this class at this College of the Desert class at a division of COD called PACE. They have a class in training veterinary assistants. And it's a very little known class, actually. When, when Deanne was first investigating how to find uh, a way to train uh, veterinarians or veterinary technicians or veterinary assistants, she went through College of the Desert um, administration. They weren't even aware of that class. Wow. And I, I talked to Kay Hazen, who's another longtime friend. She used to be on the board, and she still does marketing for COD. And she told me about this, this, uh, this subsidiary of College of the Desert. This base, they have their own little campus at the Palm Desert Mall. And um, uh, uh, it's, it, it's a, they were doing remote classes. And uh, so, so we want to give more exposure to this PACE class. And uh, we, we came, they have a, a class that costs $3,200 to be trained to be a veterinary assistant, which gets paid $16 an hour. 
So we, my idea was if we raised money for scholarships to this class, then we could get more veterinary assistance working in the Coachella Valley in the high desert. And that, that had become a crisis in veterinary care because uh, so many, during the pandemic, so many people were adopting pets to help them cope, cope with the isolation. And veterinary assistants and veterinary technicians were quitting because they didn't want to be exposed to people with COVID. So it was a perfect storm, and we really need to uh, replenish the veterinary services staffs, staffs throughout the Coachella Valley. And the best way seemed to be to put more kids through college and t get them certified through that class. And we've, we're, we're doing that now. We've, got, we, we, we're, we've given away uh, um, six, almost 12 uh, scholarships, and then the last six will be given away next fall. And uh, those people will be entering the workforce to provide veterinary care. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah it's great a great organization. organization, and I think that your involvement has really, you know, helped them not only kind of survive but thrive. Yeah, and now we're um, trying to campaign for Deanne uh, to get uh, recognized as founder of the year for the local philanthropy organization. Yeah, National Philanthropy yeah, Day, which right, is coming up. Right, right. So she... She um, started this organization, and uh, she was just a, a fantastic partner. As, uh, in fact, she showed so much trust that in me that it made me do things that I really wasn't ever planning to do. But she was just she's a nurturer, and and uh, and she's just an, an ideal partner. So I would certainly advocate for her for recognition from National Philanthropy Day. That's great. You. Um you came to the desert around 1979? Exactly, pretty 1979, close? February 5th. And I remember you saying when you got here, there wasn't enough to put on an entertainment calendar. Right. <clears throat> Forty years later, or wherever we are, this valley looks a lot different. Yes, now there's too many things to put on an entertainment <laughs> calendar. So, so we're back to where we were. There are no entertainment calendars. <laughs> so what do you see as positive changes to the valley in the time that you've been here and where do you think we still need to do some work well veterinary care is one of them and medical care is another one i mean um we've got the entertainment uh, situation pretty well handled <laughs> we don't need any more um but uh you know it, it's what we really need to do is is provide a system for people who are coming out of the Coachella Valley. Uh, I, I, I just wrote a story that has, is going to be appearing probably this weekend or uh, sometime this week in the Palm Springs Post on the next generation of musicians who have come to Palm Springs. Um, there's there's a, Matt Sorum who was the uh, was the drums the, the drummer for Guns and Roses has started a, a, a recording studio uh, called Good Noise uh, at, right next to Two Cans on 2100 North Palm Canyon oh, Drive. Wow. It's a fabulous studio, very sophisticated, and they're having a drum circle there uh, on April 1st, and uh, they're raising money for um, people with PTSD. Uh, they're, they're inviting uh, first responders, people who've had war trauma, any type of trauma, to come in and, and be part of a drum circle with these great 
professional drummers led by the the founder of this organization uh, uh, the the Raven Drum Foundation it was, is the is the one-armed drummer for Def Leppard and and uh, uh, he and his wife founded this organization and they're bringing in all these named drummers including Alvin Taylor from Palm Springs and uh, who worked with George Harrison Elton John and Billy Preston and little Richard and uh, they're they're having they're doing this event but Matt has has is part of a rock community that's buying homes here. It's just like in the days of the big band era where people followed Sinatra out here. Now they're following Paul Rogers and Spike Edney and and uh, Billy Gibbons and and there's all these old rockers who have moved to Palm Springs and now they have a studio to, to hang out in. They rehearsed there for Rock the Plaza in October and Josh Homme from Queens of the Stone Age was part of that also. And so there's this whole new generation of great musicians who are moving to Palms, who have moved to Palm Springs, and they're bringing more in. And, and uh, it's, it's just revitalizing Palm Springs music scene. I mean, there's some great, uh, so, so that's a great thing that's happening, but we can't forget the people who are coming up in Palm Springs. We have to nurture, uh, and Skip Page is doing, has been doing a great thing through AMP. You AMP know? is great, Dave. Yeah, right, right. But there's got to be more uh, awareness of the needs of the kids who are coming out of, out of this area and, and trying to get into the arts or any other types of professions. You know, we have to become a, a community that can nurture our, our kids to, to be able to have careers and not have to leave the Coachella Valley to get careers like my kids did. You know, so, so that's what I think we, we really need. Do you think those opportunities are starting to grow for them? Definitely, absolutely. I mean, uh, the Acrisure is is presenting more opportunities uh, for employment as well as to the presentation of, of, of artists. And and uh, but I don't think that that's a cure all. You know, I I I think that um, you know they like to say that they're bringing in acts that we've never seen before, except for the fact that the Eagles have been here before, and Doobie Brothers have been here before. You know, they're not aware of the heritage of of the Coachella Valley, and I'm here to kind of remind people. And Patrick, you're here to remind people of what we've been doing for a long time. You know, and you uh, got here 20, 20 years before I did, so it, <laughs> I, I defer to the dean here. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that there are people who are not aware. Uh, it's interesting when you look at you know the entertainment scene in the Coachella Valley. We had a long conversation with Skip on our very first podcast about uh, about the big music festivals that come here, but uh, they are here, but they're not really of here. And I think they've done a better job in recent years of bringing in local talent and showcasing that. But you know that was certainly was not. You know, that brings in people from outside to see people from outside, yeah. and it's a different kind of thing. Yeah, this other pro- project that I've I've been talking about. Um, uh, with this young Frank Sinatra fanatic, he's 32 years, old, 34 years old, I guess he is, the early 30s, um, who's who owns over a hundred Frank Sinatra albums, you know, and and he's a video guy, and he w- wants to work with me on a project that that shows, and this is something that I've talked with people about writing uh, uh, in depth about um, about the transition to how. Frank Sinatra died in 1998. Coachella started in 1999. 
that's a, a real milestone yeah, period. Yeah, 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 right. Well, it represents a total changing of the guard. It does. It absolutely it, does. And and how did that change happen? You know, I mean, it was it was another it was another matter of an underground scene that was boiling up and made it possible for this area to seem conducive to a festival like Coachella. We had, we had the generator scene, generator parties, which uh, I only covered one in all those years. Really? But, uh, yeah. I mean, one was enough. <laughs> I mean, how many times do you need to go to Burning Man, too? You know? Well, yeah. Uh, but, uh, but At least once. Everybody yeah. should go once. But that was, but that was, uh, that, that was a, a, an indigenous culture. And so when, when people from out of town came here and discovered the, um, how great the Empire Polo Club is, and that started with the Pearl Jam concert in 1993, uh, they recognized it was, it was a meeting of the cultures. It was somebody from Los Angeles who had access to these great acts, and, and it was... Uh, there was an audience in the Coachella Valley that was willing to be outdoors for long periods of time and and support live music. And they were so ready for live music because of, of everything that they had endured with the underground scene where the cops were always coming and breaking up their parties that they were just overjoyed. And the ambiance of, of that first festival was so magical. I mean, I wrote a column about it, comparing it to the the Beatles' release of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, because to me it was a ch- uh, it was a little. I didn't think of it. Well, yeah, I did think of it actually, because I was writing about Sinatra's death in in 1998, and at the same time there was a, a promoter putting on a big country festival called the Big Gig, that I that was so terrible. I called it the Big Flop. <laughs> Uh, and and they lost their shirts and Paul and, and and Rick Van Santen were at that festival and Rick was the guy who had been to Desolation Center and they kind of got scared but they learned what not to do from the big gig and and I was writing about Sinatra's death at the same time that I was writing about the preparation for the big gig wow. and and then the next year we had Coachella, and like I said, to me it was like when the Beatles transformed from a boy band to an art band. Uh, the culture changed from rock and roll to rock, and the concert industry changed from uh, individual concerts to festivals in 1999. And and uh, it wasn't an overnight thing, but that's when it started. And so it, that's how significant it was. And so so this guy wants to do a documentary on that and you know so i'm not committing to that <laughs> i want to i want to uh, go back a little bit uh prior to that big cultural shift when mm-hmm. sinatra died oh and i really want you to kind of talk a little bit about because you know i'm a sinatra f- diehard yes not not exactly a fanatic but uh <laughs> talk a little bit about your relationship with frank over the years and i know you you tell a funny story about the first time that you ended up kind of covering him and but you guys developed a rapport over the years. Well, sort of. <laughs> I, I had a much better relationship as you did with Barbara. Yes. Uh, but it was uh, my relationship with Frank was that he knew I existed. <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's a good start. Yeah. Well, right. you started out kind of um, 
writing about how the community reacted to Frank Sinatra That's before what I, you knew Frank. Yes. Yeah. And, and, well, he actually approached me before I ever approached him because uh, I was brand new at the Desert Sun, and one of the traditions that the Desert Sun had, we had our own charity up in Garner Valley. And this was in Sinatra in Palm Springs. And uh, um, the, the, the rookie reporter always had to raise money for this charity to send kids to camp. And uh, so I got that assignment, which I thought was a real conflict of interest. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I resisted doing it. And, you know, like I said, at that point, I really didn't care about being at the Desert Sun. So, you know, I put my foot down. I wasn't going to do it. And then they said, you're going to do it or you're going to lose your job. So I did it. <laughs> and and so basically we had persuasive to Persuasive argument. Yeah, that's a good yeah. argument. Right. So we had to write these stories about kids who needed to go to camp and why we needed to raise money, for, why people needed to send money in. But I got such a late start that one week to go, we were $1,000. People were sending $5, $10, $25, you know. That's and what uh, that people had, so. Yeah. And uh, so a week to go, we were $1,000 short. And all of a sudden, Frank Sinatra sends in a check for $1,000 so I could meet my goal. Oh. You know, and uh, I go, wow. And, and, I, and I wasn't a huge Sinatra fan at that time. Uh, it, it was really seeing him in concert that, uh, that changed my, my view of him. You know what was interesting? You talked about Leo Zahn before and, and his movie Sinatra and Palm Springs. Yeah. And I had him on I had the Desert, and he told me right up front, he said, I was not a Sinatra fan. And he, and he didn't do the movie because he was a Sinatra fan. It was more because he was a Palm Springs fan. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. And, and so you came from sort of the same perspective, I, I but, but your perspective changed. It did. It absolutely did. I came from a generation where he was looked upon as the old generation and, you know, someone who was uh, 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 deprecating of, of rock and roll. And you're a rock and roll Yeah. Man. I mean, actually, I was... Uh, yeah, I mean, I was just getting into serious jazz at that time, uh, and and I'll, I'll never forget. Um, I was listening to his concert. I mean, I, when I got here, there there was a, a great lounge scene. I mean, amazing pianists here and great vocalists who were playing with the pianist. But everybody in 1979 was singing New York, New York, you know, <laughs> and and I got so tired of that song and I started making fun of it and I started making fun of everybody's revering Frank Sinatra. So I was basically making fun of Frank Sinatra in my column and and um, and then I, I wound up in a in a at, at a nightclub where the where this PR guy told me that Sinatra hung out and you know this, if you want to see him this is the place to go to see Sinatra oh, okay oh, sure sure so we went there and there was Sinatra you know and, and I was there with a drunken friend who said I'm going to say hi to Frank <laughs> no <laughs> please don't and that's how you met Dean Martin <laughs> yeah. but but I had a, a, these type of account encounters he was everywhere in town you know and it was it was always a thrill to see him walk into a place with an entourage, but you knew your place. You didn't talk to him unless, you know, I mean, there were some opportunities I had to talk to him, but I rarely talked to him. I went to a lot of galas where I was there at this photo ops and they told you, you do not talk to Frank Sinatra. 
But if he started talking to, to you, then you could talk to him. And I always respected that. I mean, I knew he was at Dominic's every Monday night watching Monday Night Football. I never went down to Dominic's to say hello to him, you know. I'd, I'd run into him. And, and you, there were times that you could say hello. I mean, I, I, I was at uh, Temple Isaiah uh, talking with Rabbi Hurwitz, and he drove up in a car. You know, got out of a, a back seat of a town car, and that was when I was formally introduced to him, and I stammered, <laughs> <laughs> as one would around Frank. Yeah, and uh, he made fun of me for stammering, oh. <laughs> as Frank would. He goes, yeah, people, people, people come up to me. It was Frank Sinatra. It's Frank Sinatra. You know, and I'm, yeah, I'm one of those. <laughs> yeah, hey, so. listen, before we. Uh, wrap up here one of the things that uh, Patrick and I talked about when we put this podcast together was we thought it would be kind of cool to talk to people about music that meant something in their life um, something that influenced you or a special memory tied to a song anything in particular you can think of well that's a great question and something I'd have to think a lot about but spontaneously I just happen to have a list <laughs> uh, yeah I mean there are songs that that uh, have shaped my life to tell you the truth I mean literally um, things that that I've I've thought about and that have have shaped my formulated my life like I was thinking about how um, when I was getting leaving i grew up in whittier and um it, very smoggy town and outside of los angeles and i was going to go to san francisco and i was i was at a formative change in my time in my life and woodstock came out joni mitchell wrote woodstock and the, the line i've come here to lose the smog and i feel to be a cog in something turning that's me i mean um when when uh they wrote uh, my uh, appreciation when I left the Desert Sun. <coughs> they picked out that, that, that phrase because I had used it a lot. I always wanted to be a cog in something turning. And um, Kristen Sharkey, who I sat next to, knew I, said, knew I said that. She put that in the story, and I thought that was so meaningful because that, that lyric was so important to me. Uh, uh, I'll go over this quickly. When I was in college and getting more into politics, I saw Bob Dylan uh, in his comeback concert tour. And it was right, it was 1974. Richard Nixon was, was being pushed out of office because of Watergate. And it was getting close to the time where he was leaving. And <coughs> Dylan, Dylan sang, uh, it's all right, Ma, I'm only bleeding, with the line, sometimes even the President of the United States sometimes must have to stand naked. <laughs> And the crowd stood and roared because we, we knew he was talking about Nixon. And it was just like, the revolution has happened. Uh, Dylan predicted it was going to happen. And he was there to celebrate the moment. It was just, you know, one of those, one of those incredible moments that... Uh, um, then I came to Palm Springs. Uh, um, my first impression of Palm Springs seeing... I've been coming out here for years, you know. But... Um, Walk, driving through town, seeing all the houses, the, the, the expensive houses, and knowing all the rich people. I had a, a tape playing in my car of Lead Belly's Bourgeois Blues. <laughs> Tell all the colored folks, listen to me, don't try to find no home in Washington, D.C., because it's a bourgeois town. <laughs> it's a bourgeois town. 
home of the brave, land of the free. I don't want to be treated, mistreated by no bourgeoisie. That's what I was playing as I came into Palm Springs. Wow. 20 years later, one of my best friends who had me write a book about him was the guy who published Bourgeois Blues. Lived around the corner from me, Howie Amazing. Richmond. He was the founder of the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and he published Lead Belly. You know, so, so that's another one of those instrumental songs. Um, after my first year at the, at the Desert Sun, when, like I said, this, um, this fan base that I had that took me completely by surprise. It was, it was one of those things where every time I went out to a nightclub, people were buying me drinks because I was a breath of fresh air because, like I said, I was just writing about myself having fun and I was making fun of Frank Sinatra, you know, and, and uh, I, at the same time, I was single and I'd come home at night and be alone and sometimes I'd get lucky. <laughs> <laughs> when you were home alone? <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but that kind of podcast, kids. <laughs> but but there, was this, there was this line in a Neil Young song, Cowgirl in the Sand, Old enough now to change your name. When so many love you, is it the same? And I realized, you know, I had, a, I had fans who didn't know me at all, but they loved me. But it wasn't the same as having one person who really loves you. And Jane changed that for me. And, and uh, uh, so, so, and, and when, when I married her, I changed the pronunciation of my name because I was Fasir. And she didn't like the way that sounded. She thought we should go with the, the, with the proper pronunciation of Fessier. So I changed my name, and I had someone who wow. was more important to me than all the fans in the world. That's so, love. Yeah, that's it love. really was. Last one, um, also from It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding. There's another line from that song that has resonated with me over the years and is really guiding me today, that he not busy being born is busy dying and if I'm I've got to be busy I've got to be doing things and and I am doing things now because the alternative is, is I'd be busy dying so that's my story awesome that's well, awesome you remain very busy I always enjoy reading what you put in on out on social media and Facebook and, and all the other venues and places that you're putting some some really great content out there. Thank you. I know it was an interesting transition from the paper. And the next time we have you on, we need to talk, kind of dig into that. Uh, you and I both have a little history with the paper. My first <laughs> wife worked there. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, it's, it, I think you continue to kind of dig in and, and make yourself relevant and really continue to explore the valley in really interesting, fun ways. And we appreciate you spending time with us. Oh, thank you. And thanks for what you've done for the valley. The influence that you've had in this valley has been unbelievable. I've only been here 12 years. And that was one of the first things I found out when I got here. Thanks oh, thank for all you. of that. Thank you. Yeah. Next time we get you in here, we got to have Jane, too. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Should we have them lot. separately, maybe? And then, then we'll bring them to like, a, like an old match game show. <laughs> Bruce, thank you. And we hope to have you on again it's soon. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Patrick, another one. Always fun to have these big conversations, little bar here with Randy. And so, so grateful for our guest, Bruce, who, I mean, literally the tip of the iceberg here. I mean, we barely, this is just the snowflake on the iceberg that yeah. you could talk about. Yeah. We appreciate you sharing your time and history with us. Well, I love ha having an opportunity to refer to the where I'm writing stories on Facebook. So I, I really, I mean, a lot of people don't like Facebook, but I really wish that they would follow 
me on Facebook just to keep up with where I'm writing. I'm loving the stories. Hey, also thank John McMullen. Absolutely. uh, Fearless producer and engineer. John, thanks for your help. And we, of course, want to thank Little Bar for hosting us. The center of the Coachella Valley. The absolute center. Yay, Skip. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, guys. Thank everybody for joining us on this edition of Big Conversations Little Bar. And we have lots of great guests lined up in the very near future. So keep it tuned to your favorite podcast platform. We'll be dropping new episodes as quick as we can record them. <laughs> Good to see you again, Patrick. Always Bruce, All right. Thanks for listening to Big Conversations Little Bar. Join Randy and Patrick next time as we keep the conversation going right here on Big Conversations Little Bar. Little Bar.